Turn with me to Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 38. If you are using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 21, verse 29 on page 828. So grab a Bible from the seat in front of you and turn to page 828, or grab the Bible that you brought, or look on with the the screen, and we will kind of uh, work our way through this this passage. Jesus is going to tell a parable in Luke 21. Uh, parable of a fig tree. He's going to point to a fig tree that they they literally see out in front of them and use it as an object lesson uh, to tell to tell about to describe the realities of uh, the kingdom of God and about the return of Christ and uh, eternal realities like uh, judgment and salvation and how uh, we as God's people um, are called to live in light of all of that. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning. We're going to read uh, this parable. And then we're just going to take a few minutes and consider, right? Consider the reality of Christ's return and consider how we as God's people are called to live uh, in light of it and live in anticipation of it and prepare uh, for it. So let's uh, let's just jump, jump right in. I'll start in verse 29. It says, and he told them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and he lodged on the Mount Mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing uh, on our time in your word this morning. We pray that you would uh, meet us here. We pray that you would bless these next few minutes. We pray that you would uh, sanctify them and set them apart uh, for the purpose of growing and encouraging and helping uh, us, your people. We pray that your name would be exalted and magnified as we consider uh, the the truths of your uh, holiness and righteousness and faithfulness. And we pray that our uh, souls would be encouraged, that we would would delight in you together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Jesus told them a parable. Parable is... A story with a point. It's kind of the, 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 the Cliff Notes version of what a parable is. A, a story intended to communicate a deeper reality. Jesus says, look at the fig trees, at all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and you know that the summer is already near. Right? So he says, you see signs in nature that communicate fixed Cycles and, and, and realities, right? Uh, you know, the leaves grow. It's, it's spring coming into the summer. The leaves turn colors. It's the fall. They fall off. It's the winter. The branches are bare. 
You can kind of see and discern these observable, repeatable, reliable patterns of what things indicate what time it is and what is about to happen. And Jesus says, just like there are kind of these fixed laws that govern the physical universe that tell us where we are and what's going to take place, there are similarly uh, laws that govern the spiritual universe. Verse 31, you know that when you see these things taking place, that the kingdom of God is near. Now, two terms that we need to nail down in that verse. Uh, these things and kingdom of God. Can't really assign meaning to verse 31 unless you know those two. These things is referring to basically the first, uh, you know, the majority of Luke chapter 21. I think verses Luke, Luke 21 verses 5 through 28. It's pretty much the these things. He spent the better part of Luke 21 talking about things that were going to happen. right? Wars, violence, famine, pestilence, persecution, suffering, natural disasters. Luke 5, 21 to 28, or uh, Luke 21, 5 to 28 kind of describes those in uh, depth. So he says, when you see those, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, so if that's what these things are, then what is the kingdom of uh, of God? Um, the kingdom of God is is uh, described uh, in the Bible, kind of in a number of different ways. But the the recurring theme that kind of runs through the Bible, the kingdom of God is God's righteous rule and reign as our King, right in heaven here on earth. The location is kind of uh, you know two twofold, but it's it's living with God. Uh, in the presence of God, enjoying the glory of God, under the rule of God, the will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the, the kingdom of God that Jesus prays for in the, the Lord's Prayer. So, G- Jesus says, when you see all of those things happening, then you know that the kingdom of God is coming. Now, in order to understand how the kingdom of God is going to come and what exactly this verse is kind of meaning and implying, we have to understand a theological uh, you know, concept uh, called inaugurated eschatology. I, I, don't, I don't like to throw big words around for the sake of it, but sometimes they are uh, important. And so when, when necessary, we throw big terms around and then we just define them. So inaugurated eschatology is this idea that... Um, When the Bible talks about things that are going to happen in the future, specifically things that are going to happen uh, in the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, um, you know, it it talks about all kinds of things, right? Jesus is going to, the Messiah is going to save his people. He's going to defeat his enemies. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to rule over his people, right? If you read through the Old Testament, you see lots and lots of, of references and allusions and prophecies about the coming Messiah who's going to do all of those things. And inaugurated eschatology is something that we, uh, it's, it's kind of a concept that we arrive at after reading through the New Testament and realizing that those things didn't all happen at once like maybe we thought they would after a cursory reading of the Old Testament. So you read the Old Testament, again, um, Messiah is coming. Genesis three fifteen. God tells Eve that one of her descendants is going to crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse that was brought about by sin and rebellion. Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses that there's going to be a prophet like him who's going to come and speak God's word to God's people. 2 Samuel 7, God tells David there's going to be a king like him who's going to come and rule over God's people and establish his throne forever. Ezekiel 36 and 37, God says that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out on the people of God and they'll have new life that's abundant and eternal. 
Isaiah 26 and Daniel 12, God tells them that the dead are going to get up out of the grave. They're going to live again and be raised from the dead. And they're going to sing and and worship God for joy. There's kind of all of these prophecies about what's going to happen when the kingdom of God comes, when the Messiah comes to establish and kind of God's kingdom is going to break into this world and we're going to experience life as it was meant to be lived. If you read the Old Testament uh, kind of at a a cursory glance, uh, it might look initially, we have a graph here, the first of them, like this is kind of what, what you would expect, right? There's the age that we're living in, uh, and then the Messiah is going to come, the, the Spirit is going to be poured out, the, the, res, the dead are going to be raised from the dead, and then we're going to be in the age to come. Inaugurated eschatology says that this is a little bit too simplistic. It says that this kind of says that there's a, a fixed point, and, and uh, you know, when you're on the left side of that point, uh, the kingdom of God has not yet come, but when you're on the right side of that point, the kingdom of God has already come. And inaugurated eschatology says that it's a little more complex. It looks more like figure B. It says that there's this age that is not, right now even, it's not over yet. Um, but then there's the age to come. Uh, there's the kingdom of God has already started to, to break in. I'm indebted to a, profess, a professor from Westminster for these slides. But um, yeah, it says that, there, that there's kind of this tension in the middle where the kingdom of God has already come in some sense because Jesus has come, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the people of God, Jesus himself has been raised from the dead, and he's kind of the first fruits of the resurrection that we're going to experience. But it hasn't come in its fullness. It hasn't been fully consummated yet. That won't happen until this age ends at the second coming of Christ when all of the dead are raised. The dead who are in Christ are raised to live with him forever. The dead who are apart from Christ are raised to be separated from God forever. So, so the kingdom of God is already and not yet. Again, you read the Old Testament and that doesn't jump out at you because it doesn't really make it clear that there are going to be separate events. First coming of Christ, second coming of Christ, and attention of already and not yet in the middle. But as you read the New Testament, it's kind of unavoidable. You can't get around it, right? Romans 8.15 uh, says that we have been adopted already as the children of God. Romans 8.23 says that we are waiting to be adopted as the children of God at some point in the future. So how are those both true at the same time? Ephesians 1.7 says that we have already been redeemed through Christ. Ephesians 4.30 says that we will be redeemed by Christ at some point in the future. 1 Corinthians 1-2 says that we've already been sanctified in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says that we will be sanctified by Christ at some point in the future. Ephesians 2-8, we've already been saved. Romans 5-9, we will be saved at some point in the future. Ephesians 2-6, we've already been raised with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15-52, we will be raised with Christ at some point in the future. There's, so there's some sense, it's unavoidable. When you read the New Testament, there's some sense in which the kingdom of God has already arrived. It's already here. Elements of it have already been inaugurated. And there's some sense in which the kingdom of God is not here yet. And we're waiting for those things to happen. So we're kind of in this space in the middle. The kingdom of God has already been consummated, but it has not yet, or it has already been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. Which is why Jesus can say something like this in Romans, or in John 4, 23. The hour is coming in the future and is now here in the present 
When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That's what will happen in the kingdom of God. The true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That is happening right now. When when believers gather together and worship God in spirit and truth, the kingdom of God is here now. And that's what will happen in the future when we do it more fully and more really in the kingdom of heaven, in, in, in the eternal state. Same thing with John 5. 25, an hour is coming in the future and is now here in the present when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So a present reality of the kingdom is that when people trust Christ and come to Christ, they hear the gospel, they hear the voice of the Son of God, dead people who are spiritually dead are resurrected spiritually and live new lives in Christ. That's a present reality. If you're a Christian right now today, you are in the kingdom of God, you were dead, you are now alive. Those are already true right now. And they'll be more fully true or more deeply true in the kingdom of heaven in the age to come because we will literally have died and we will literally have been raised from the dead and we'll literally be living in the presence of Jesus then. The kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is not yet here. Now, here's why that's important. We can go back to uh, Luke 21. Why that's important is that informs how we read passages like this. Right? When we read passages about the coming of the kingdom of God, the, the day that is drawing near, right? With how the signs are... If you, if you read those things and you don't have a, an understanding of the already and the not yet, then... You know, we read this passage and we think, okay, this is saying that uh, just like you see leaves on the trees, that means it's summertime. Well, when we see certain things happening in the world, wars, uh, natural disasters, persecution, right? Then that means that like the rapture is coming in a matter of days or weeks. And so, you know, the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast. And we have, you know, this person's the antichrist, whatever, right? Like we kind of get all of these like things and we kind of place them into what we think the, uh, the, the end times uh, is going to look like. Right? You max out your credit card. You're like, I'm just, you know, the rapture's coming. So I'm just going to cash out my 401k and max out all my credit cards. Joke's on them because I'm going to magically disappear before the bill uh, arrives next month. Right? Uh, so so uh, an, an understanding of the New Testament doctrine of inaugurated eschatology kind of protects us from that kind of short-sightedness because we realize that the kingdom is already here right when jesus can say that uh, when you see these things which we are experiencing right we are experiencing war and violence and suffering and persecution all of those things that jesus talked about we are experiencing them and the kingdom is near because the kingdom is here like the kingdom is already here and it is not yet here so uh one maybe way to summarize those two both being true at the same time is that it's near it's here and it's not yet here it is uh it is near so luke 21 i would submit is not so much intended to be this like secret code that you can like watch the news at night and kind of figure out uh, you know, a calculation to give you the exact date of when you're going to magically disappear like the Left Behind movies, which I don't really think is going to happen anyway. I think that that's a little bit of a um, simplistic understanding of, of the how Jesus is going to return. 
But Luke 21 is not saying, here's how you can look at the news and figure out when the rapture is going to be. What it's saying is, you're living in this weird tension in the middle where the kingdom of God has already come and the kingdom of God is not here yet. And that space that you're living in, everyone between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is living in that space. And that space is marked by the kingdom being here and not being here yet. And it's also marked by suffering and persecution. So when you experience suffering and when you experience persecution... Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. Don't uh, think that God's plan has failed. Right? That like suffering and persecution for the believer in the already and not yet is it means that things are going exactly as God intended for it to go. It means that the kingdom is near. It's here and it's not yet here. It's near and it means that you are to uh, persevere through. Inaugurated eschatology also uh, protects the, the you know. It, it gives us a balance. Already and not yet, kind of living in tension with one another, give us a balance of how to live in this world and anticipate our eternal life in the, the age to come, right? If you, if you, you know, lean too heavily toward already or toward not yet, you kind of are this weird lopsided kind of, you know, Christian that's not quite, doesn't, you know, if you lean too much toward not yet, then you're, you run the risk of being so heavenly minded that you're of little earthly good, right? So you're uh, constantly thinking about the rapture and the end times and, and you're, maybe you're missing the boat on being a good steward of what God has entrusted to you right here, right now. Your family, your kids, your friends, your, your neighbors, loving your neighbor, caring for the poor, right? You're, you're, you run the risk of neglecting this life, this world right now, already here, at the expense of, you know, or for the sake of the next world that's not yet here. And then there's the already guys, right? Um, who, for them, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now, right? The kingdom is, the, the point of church is not so much to preach the Bible or preach the gospel or see people turn from their sins and trust in Jesus as much as it is to restore communities and, and, you know, eradicate poverty and climate change. And, and let's, you know, everything is all about right here, right now. And you miss the point of, of the not yet of the eternal life that is coming at some point in the future. So inaugurated eschatology helps us to understand that this world, this life right here matters. Our neighbors matter. The, the world that we're living in, the creation that God has entrusted to us, it matters. And the age to come that is not here yet matters. So we need to turn from our sins and trust in Jesus and encourage other people to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Then verse 32 is one of the, one of the more enigmatic and one of the like, more debated verses in all of Luke. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. A lot of guys think a lot of different things about what this verse means. So kind of, at first, some of the guys who, some of the guys think, all right, well, what this means is that this generation Jesus is talking to, the disciples that are immediately around him, will not pass away until all of this has taken place. Jesus has returned. Jesus has established, like, the, the second coming of Christ. And they're saying, well, see, that means that, like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because they did, like, they did die. 
all of the disciples and everyone that was there, that generation did pass away before all of this took place. So we can't trust the Bible. We can't trust Jesus. That's kind of one camp, which I would just dismiss outright because we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. So then we're left trying to think through, all right, what does generation mean? What does pass away mean? What does taken place mean? What, what do these things mean such that it's true and it's not something that is demonstrably, verifiably false? And so some theologians say... Okay, uh, taken place doesn't necessarily mean the second coming of Christ. Um, because if that were the case, then, then again, we, we would, this verse wouldn't, we wouldn't know what to do with it. But what taken, what taken place means, he's actually referring back to Luke 21, I think verses 5 through 9, where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Everyone's looking around at the temple and he says, look up at all of these ornate stones and everything. This temple is going to be destroyed, raised to the ground. One stone will not even exist on top of the other. And as a matter of fact, that happened in 70 AD when Rome besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That happened within the generation of the people that were here listening to Jesus. So they say, Jesus, the, this generation means the people around him and has taken place means the destruction of the temple that would happen in 70 AD, which I think is, is uh, certainly plausible. I, mean, all, I think all these are plausible, to be honest. Uh, some other guys think, no, uh, has taken place doesn't refer to the destruction of the temple. It refers to the second coming of Christ. But the key is, what does this generation mean? And so uh, if you look at the, the semantic range of the word generation in, in Greek, it could mean uh, ethnicity or a people group. So not necessarily like one, you know, like Gen X, right? 67 to 81 or whatever, whoever you're born. But like just a, a group of people, not, a, not a, a time frame people that were born. But like, and so they're saying, oh, well, generation means uh, ethnic Israel. So Jesus is saying that the nation of Israel will not uh, pass away. It won't be. Uh, eradicated off of the uh, off, out of human history until the second coming of Christ, or even more generally, just humanity. This generation means all of humanity. The human race will live on and perpetuate until Jesus returns. Both, I think, are possible. Could, could certainly mean that. Some think this generation means uh, the the generation of people who uh, see and witness and experience all of the things that we've seen in Luke five, Luke 21 so far. So all of the wars and, and violence and persecution and the temple being destroyed and, and the, the nations surrounding the, the, uh, city of Jerusalem and, you know, uh, like this kind of all of the, the end times eschatological, th- and when the, whatever the generation is that sees all of those things happening, that generation You'll, you'll know that you're within about 30 years of the return of Christ because that generation is not going to pass away until all this has taken place. I, I'm not really sure which of these is the, the exact interpretation of this verse. And part of it is because, like we said before, given the biblical doctrine of inaugurated eschatology, it's kind of, um, it's not a moot point, but it... Uh, the, if you interpret and understand the kingdom of God in this broad, multifaceted, already inaugurated at the first coming of Christ, will eventually be consummated at the second coming of Christ, kind of big, broad understanding, well, then you realize that the kingdom of God was actually just a few short days. Like, Jesus is going to be killed in just a couple days. This is the Passion Week. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in Luke 19. 
And we're in Luke 21. He's going to be uh, killed in Luke 23. So there's about five days in between there. And that's where... So, so, Jesus, so if you understand the kingdom, the way the New Testament seems to set it out, the kingdom of God was going to come in a few short days in one sense. And it was not going to come for thousands of years in another sense. So then when you read this, it kind of doesn't seem as enigmatic. It's like, sure. The, the generation of people, like whether you define generation as Jesus' hearers, or the ethnic Israel, or all of humanity, or whoever it is, the, the fact of the matter is the kingdom of God was near, is near, and arrived a few short days after these words were spoken, and will finally arrive uh, in its fullest sense uh, when Jesus returns. So, Jesus is saying, I'm going to return. When I do, right, the kingdom of God is going to break in. It's going to happen at my first coming. It's going to happen more fully at my second coming. When, you know, the generation will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, right? It's almost like, it's like speaking of pass away, like since I just read. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So he says, you can, these are promises that you can count on. I am coming back. I am going to uh, save my people. I am going to destroy my enemies. You can trust me because I keep my promises. That's verses 29 to 33. Jesus is coming back. Jesus keeps his promises. You as God's people can trust in the promises and in the word of Jesus and know you can be assured, you can have confidence that he is going to come back. And then verses 34 and following tell us what we should be doing now in response to that reality. Given the fact that Jesus is coming back, given the fact that he is going to judge the living and the dead, given the fact that he's going to save his people and bring them with him into his presence forever, what should we be doing right now? And Jesus answers that question with a positive of what we should be doing and with a negative of what we... Yeah, switch that. Right, with a negative of what we should not be doing in verses 34 and a positive of what we should be doing in verse 36. What should we not be doing? He says, watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So that's what you're not supposed to be doing while you are waiting for Jesus to come back and save you and establish his kingdom. Don't be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, cares of this life. When something's dissipated, it means it's dispersed, right? It's scattered. Like if there's a fog of smoke and it dissipates or, you know. Um, and so, so uh, when you're talking about, a, if it's a verb that a person does, dissipate, it usually means to, to scatter or kind of to squander your resources, to fritter away your resources. It is to dissipate your, uh, the, the prodigal son, right? who goes, takes his father's uh, inheritance, goes away and wastes it on prodigal, you know, on reckless living. That's, he's, he's dissipating. He's practicing dissipation. So Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be weighed down with drunkenness and, and you know, frivolous, just excessive spending and scattering of your resources on things that don't matter. Which there's some cognitive dissonance in that sentence because that... That is not something we would normally uh, associate with being weighed down, right? 
dissipation, spending frivolously on uh, cares and pleasures of the world and drunkenness, right? Eating and drinking to excess all that you want with little care for anyone else other than yourself. That doesn't, that sounds, that sounds like a vacation, not like, like being weighed down, right? We, we think of, we think of drunkenness and dissipation as liberation from being obligated to other, right? My boss at work, my, my kids or my family members who are dependent on me, those things are, those things weigh me down. And when I can leave them and I can indulge myself and gratify my own impulses, that is liberation. Weighed down and, and, you know, being burdened, burdening, being burdened is meaning I have to obey God and, and look out for others. Being liberated means I can do whatever I want and live for myself. And Jesus understands those the exact opposite way. Right? You, you save up your money, right? Get a babysitter for the kids, go wherever you want, go shopping, spend money on yourself, sleep in. Right? Someone brings you a little drink with a little umbrella in it. That's, that's vacation. That's freedom. That's liberation. Right? And, and so we, we kind of dream of being liberated from constantly having to care about what other people think. Right? Because the, because we're, the, the world is telling us, Ben, your preferences are good. Your desires are good. Your, your impulses are good. The best thing that could possibly happen to you, the most liberating and freeing uh, and enjoyable thing that you could ever experience is the, the absolute gratification of all of your preferences and impulses all the time. And Jesus says, that's not freedom. That's slavery. Because the idea of the constant continual, never-ending gratification of your desires and impulses, the, your, your desires and impulses will never, ever be satisfied. So Jesus is saying the, the, the quest to satisfy your desires and impulses, you, you, it's just, you're just on this treadmill of constantly running and acquiring more and consuming more and thinking that the next thing that you acquire and consume is going to satisfy you, but finding yourself to be completely unsatisfied as soon as you acquire it and consume it. It's the law of diminishing returns. It's also called the phenomenon of hedonic adaptation. You can Google it. Um, hedonic adaptation says that uh, no matter what you get in life, we all kind of have this baseline of happiness. And whatever we get, our happiness is going to regress back to the mean shortly thereafter. You'll have this euphoric sense of, oh, wow, this new thing that I got, this, uh, you know, make more money, lose weight, hit some benchmark, get a car, get a house, whatever, right? right? Uh, there will be this euphoric uh, rise in happiness shortly after you acquire it, and then hedonic, hedonic adaptation says, and then you just kind of regress back to the mean. You're, you're no happier or sadder than you were before you got that thing. And so Jesus is saying, this never-ending quest to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled in the cares of this world, right? Spending more on yourself, eating and drinking more, having more, that feels like freedom. But what that is, is just running on a treadmill forever, trying to be satisfied and you never will. And you're probably saying, I, I don't believe you because I can think of some things that if I had them, I'd be happy. And I don't think that that's true, right? You can say, you don't understand, Ben. If I had a billion dollars... 
I'd be happy. I'd never have to work again. If my kids grew up and they were happy and, and successful and healthy, then I'd be like, that's what I'm hoping for. If I see that happen, I, can, I will be happy. I won't have to worry about it. But it's not true. And the reason why we can know that that's not true, the reason why we can doubt our tendency to think that something in the future will make us finally and completely happy is that the life you're living right now is the life that you were wishing for at some point in the past. I don't know when it was, but at some point in the past, you were wishing to have the exact life you're living right now. And then you thought, if I have that life, I will be, I'll never ask for anything. Yeah, that, that will be great. I'll be perfectly happy. And we're, we're all discontent to one degree or another. Right? We all kind of have lived this life. I can't wait until I'm in high school. Can't wait until I can drive. Can't wait until I go to college. Can't wait until I get a job and get some income. Can't wait until I get married. Can't wait until I have kids. Can't wait until I buy a house. Can't wait until I buy a bigger house. Can't wait until the kids move out of that house. Can't wait until I retire. Right? Like, a, you know, you can fill in the blank and we're, we're constantly convincing ourselves that this next thing is going to make me happy. I'll finally be able to enjoy it. But we never, that never is the, the case. It's just this constant uh, treadmill. So Jesus says that's not, uh, you, you, you are understanding consumption of more things as this free and liberating experience. In reality, it's slavery. In reality, you're being weighed down by the cares of this life. Selfishness, self-indulgence, self-exaltation, self-sufficiency, Self-ism, right? It's, the world is a slave trader disguised as an abolitionist, right? It's promising freedom, but in reality it gives you burdens that weigh you down. So Jesus says, don't live for those things. Don't be consumed by those things. Don't be obsessed with those things. Because the day, uh, that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. So, so you, the, the reason why you need to live now in anticipation of and preparing for the day when Jesus is going to return is because you don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen any uh, moment, right? We, we, human beings have this tendency to think, okay, I acknowledge that something is going to happen, but I also think deep down inside that there's some, if, if the thing that, that is going to happen is way out here, uh, there's some space right before it where I can start to prepare for it, right? Uh, that test isn't due for a week, so I'll study for it on next week. Or that's why selling life insurance is so hard. Everyone knows they're going to die, but no one thinks they're going to die today. So everyone's like, "Yeah, I'll buy life insurance tomorrow," right? Or, or you know, it, so we're we're constantly thinking, "I'll prepare later for this thing." That I, this is why snooze buttons exist. I know I got to be at work. I'm going to be at work right now. I can sleep 10 more minutes, right? So we're all, we're all kind of putting off the preparation for these things that are coming in the future that we know are, are coming. And Jesus is saying, you're, there's not going to be a, a moment in the future where you can or should begin preparing for the day when Jesus comes, right? That, that day is coming at any moment and it will come suddenly. I was talking with this verse about, uh, I was talking with this passage with some friends and, and, uh, I was sharing that my wife and I have, uh, our phones, we can track each other. I can pull out my phone at any moment and see exactly where, where Jerry is, vice versa. Like, and like uncannily, like 
It's not just like, oh, Jerry is in Smithfield. It's like Jerry's at the store. She's in the produce section. She's looking at tomatoes. She's checking out on aisle six. Like, it's like really, and, and you can even set your phone to be like, uh, Jerry's at the park playing, you know, doing whatever. She's meet, getting coffee with a friend. And when she leaves that location, ding, buzz, give me a warning so I'll know that she's on her way home. Little secret here. I come across as a way better husband than I really am because of that feature. I, if we didn't have that, if we didn't have that, she would get home and I'd be passed out asleep. Baxter would be hanging from the ceiling fan, right? The game would be on the, you know, and, but instead she gets and like, so I get this like 20 minute warning. She's on her way home. Find Baxter. Get like, vacuum the, you know, do the dishes, make everything, like make it to where when she walks in, she's like, hey, not, not bad. You did a good job while, while I'm gone. And Jesus is saying, there is no warning like that. You can't prepare for the return of Christ in that same way. You have to be constantly ready, constantly vigilant, preparing at all times, because it's going to come upon you suddenly without warning. So it's, it's going to, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. And verse 35, it's not just sudden. It's going to be comprehensive. Right? It's, going, it's going to affect every single person. Here's a statistic. I was surprised by this. I had to Google it. One out of every one person dies. Every single person, your life is going to end at some point. Right? And so, so there's no getting around it. There's no uh, escaping it. There's no, like, this is going to happen. to and Every single person is either going to die and stand before their creator, or Jesus is going to come back, and then they will stand before their creator. Right? You don't, uh, there's no, there's no one for whom this rule doesn't apply. We, we love, right, if you're like me, then, then the, the, like, you have this, your brain will trick you into thinking that the rules don't apply to you in particular, right? You know, uh, yeah, the cigarette, right? Cigarettes will give you cancer. Eh, whatever. Like, that's for someone else, not for me. Don't drink this, don't drink this medicine and then operate heavy machinery. Glug, glug, glug. Eh, whatever. That's for people who, you know, don't know what they're doing. I'm a, I'm a pro, right? I have a, I have a, I had a boss that, I had, a, I had a boss uh, when I was in seminary who would be late to work every single day. He was the, like, the biggest, just micro... If you were one... He set up a system where if you're one minute late, it flags it, and it gives you a warning, and if you get too many of those, you're fired automatically. Like, he, he was really, really, uh, you know, intent, like, just really careful about everyone's attendance and not being a minute late, and he was never less than 15 minutes late. We all knew if you had to open with him, if you had to open with any other manager, you have to get there at six because they're going to get there at six. They're carrying the key. You all go in together. But if you're there and this guy's opening, you might as well not get there at six because he's not going to get there until 6.15, probably 6.30. He's not going to know or care whether you were there or not. The rules apply to everyone else. They don't apply to me, right? We kind of all have this, you know, self-justifying way of understanding the rules of the universe. And Jesus is saying the rules apply to you. It applies to everyone. It will come on everyone who dwells on the entire face of the earth. You are going to die or Jesus is going to return. And when that happens, you will stand before your creator. 
You will give an account for the life that you lived. You will answer for every single thing that you ever did. You will answer for every idle word. You will answer for every thought that was passing through your mind. You will be completely and totally exposed. Hebrews chapter 4 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. It's not a matter of if that's going to happen or if you might be able to uh, escape it or, or have it not apply to you. It's a matter of when that is going to happen. And the question is, what will you like? How will you give an account to God for the life that you lived? What will you be giving an account for? And how will you give? an account for it. When the day of the Lord comes uh, suddenly and unexpectedly and comprehensively on every single person. So don't be weighed down by the cares of this world right, and by self, uh, self-indulgence and self-exaltation. Uh, that's, that's the negative of what not to do. And what you should do is stay awake at all times. Praying that you might have strength to escape all of these things that are going to take place to stand before the Son of Man. So what you should do, right? Don't get drunk, be weighed down by self-indulgence. What you should do is be awake, be aware, be watchful, be wakeful, be actively thinking about, right, what Jesus' vision for the Christian life is not passively reacting to whatever kind of comes my way. It's actively Right, head on a swivel, thinking, looking, on purpose, what's happening. So much of of success and growth in the Christian life comes down to being watchful and wakeful, being intentional to, to, you know, life doesn't just happen to me and I'm the passive recipient of it. I actively live my life. I actively invest in that which Jesus has called me to invest in. And I make, right, if, if you, you know... If you want to build a relationship with someone, actively initiate it and pursue them instead of passively waiting for them to come to you. If you want to be discipled by someone, actively initiate, make it happen, right? Ask them, how can I be growing in my faith? How can I have a better prayer life? How can I be a better spouse? How can I be a better parent? How can I be a better steward of my money? Initiate, pursue, watchful, wakeful, making things happen instead of passively, reactively letting things happen to you or complaining when they, when they never do. So watchful and wakeful instead of passive and reactive. And also praying, right? Prayerful. Praying that you might have the strength to escape these things that are going to take place. The, the, a person who prays is inherently, uh, inherently humble, right? The, the very nature of prayer is that we are asking God... Uh, to, to do something that we can't do, to give us something that we don't have. If, you, if you're good enough, smart enough, righteous enough, if you could handle everything on your own, you wouldn't need to pray ever. Prayer is the behavior of a dependent person, of a needy person who recognizes their own insufficiency. And so Jesus is saying, be watchful and wakeful and be prayerful. Recognize your own spiritual need and lean on God and pray for it. So don't 
get drunk, be enslaved to sin and selfish impulses. Do be watchful and prayerful. Pray for grace. Pray for strength to endure, to persevere through this life all the way until you stand before the Son of Man. This is the the idea that keeps occurring. You are going to die. Jesus is going to come back. These things are going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You can count on them. You can count on the fact that you will, at one point in the future, stand before Jesus and give an account to Him for the life that you lived. So, right now, Pray right now, persevere, and keep doing those things until you meet Jesus face to face. Keep being faithful, keep persevering, because when you, when you stand before Jesus, you will either hear Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Luke 3, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or you'll hear Matthew 7, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. You're going to stand before Jesus. You're going to die or Jesus is going to come back. And when you do, you're going to stand before him. And so you need to be preparing for that right now. Uh, Kevin Twitt uh, is a songwriter. And he says, whenever he writes, the, the whole purpose of why he writes his songs is to prepare the listeners for their encounter with death. He's a, like a modern day hymn writer. I want to prepare those who listen to my music for their encounter with death. The the entire purpose of your life is to prepare for your encounter with death. The entire reason why this church exists is to prepare us for our encounter with death. The reason we read our Bible together, the reason we listen to sermons, sing songs together, is to help us prepare for our respective encounters with death. We're going to die, or Jesus is going to come back, we're going to give an account to him, and Luke 21 is a reminder of that reality. This is going to happen, you're going to stand before Jesus, prepare for it now, don't sleep on it now. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, trust in Christ, and walk with him. And And Jesus wasn't just saying this as a thing, you know, he wasn't just like, do as I say, not as I do. Verses 37 and 38, he was doing it. Every day he was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Early in the morning, all the people came into the temple to hear him. Jesus' mission was, go preach and teach to the people of God. Your whole life, do that all the way until when you die, and then die for them. That was Jesus' mission that his father sent him on. And Jesus did it. He's going to die in a, a, a few days. Two, three, four days he's going to be dying on the cross. And he is even right now in the very uh, last few hours of his life obeying his father. So Jesus is saying, like, this is how I want you to prepare for your encounter with death. This is what I want you to do to obey me while you're living. And by the way, I'm doing that right now. Jesus never calls us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do for us and on our behalf. Preach the gospel, teach to people, call them to repentance, and then die for them. That's what Jesus uh, spent his whole life doing. That's also what we remember when we celebrate communion together. We remember that Jesus was faithful uh, throughout his life. 
Uh, Throughout his death, he died in our place for our sin. His body was broken. His blood was poured out so that our sins could be forgiven. And at the communion table, we remember it. We rejoice in it. We celebrate it. We resolve together to live in light of it. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. During the last song, we invite you to come forward, take the elements. They're individually wrapped, so they're, you know, sanitized. Take a moment, pray, confess your sin, receive the grace that Jesus freely offers you, and eat and drink. If you're not a believer, we would ask you not to take communion, because the Bible teaches against that. Instead of taking communion, we would invite you to take Christ. We would invite you to turn from your sins and trust in him. And and let us know so that you can take communion with us next time. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you're coming back, Lord. Right, That you are going to return to judge the living and the dead. We thank you that you're going to return to save your people and to bring us into your presence uh, finally and ultimately and eternally. And we pray, Lord, that we could be living our lives right now in anticipation of that reality, that we could turn from sin and self, and that we could trust in you and walk with you until we see you face to face. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.